Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's not just good for programming. It's also great for kids doing homework. It's great for reading, great for writing, anything that requires your concentration. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments at mtcb.pwop.com. That's mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1164, with guest Jun Tavastal. Recorded Thursday, June 18th, 2015. Hey, guess what? It's Carl and Richard, and we're in Norway still. Hello, sir. Hey, man, what's up? We're coming to the end of our recording binge, but it's been a lot of fun. All good shows. That's know? right. We got a panel discussion next, right. which is sure to be a riot. And it'll be a, published a couple shows from now, but yeah, yes. It'll, it'll be the last one we record, and it'll also be probably the craziest thing of the Probably all. the craziest thing, because well, there's some crazy people on yeah, the Yeah, Troy Hunt, Niall Arrigan, and, yeah. and Barry Doran's on the same panel. And what could what happen? What were we thinking? So. <laughs> well, I'm not worried. It'll be fine. All right, well, uh, I'm continuing the uh, C-sharp gotchas series here on Better Know Frameworks awesome, around awesome, the music. Awesome. Yeah. All right, dude, what's the gotcha? Well, uh, for, the, for those who haven't been listening, I've been following this thread on uh, Stack Overflow, which somebody posited the question, give me your all-time favorite or least favorite, in this case, uh, yep. gotcha in C-sharp, you know. Something that you didn't expect to work the way it does. And uh, this one is enumerables can be evaluated more than once. Huh. This is weird. Why would this happen? It'll bite you when you have a lazily enumerated enumerable and you iterate over it twice and get different results. Oh, no. Or you get the same results, but it executes twice unnecessarily. For example... While writing a certain test, this guy needed a few temp files to test the logic. So said, you know, var files equals enumerable dot range, parentheses, zero comma five dot select. And I promise I'd never read code on my yeah, show. Yeah, here you are. But here I am. But I think people can get it. Dot select and then in paren, I and then a lambda to path dot get temp file name. All right. And for each var file in files, you want to file dot write all text to the file hello world. Okay, now many lines of code later. So you basically have created a bunch of get file names, right. temp file names, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And so then you iterate over them in a for each. And then many lines of code later, you iterate again over them to delete them. For each var file in files, file delete file. Imagine my surprise when file delete file throws file not found. (laughs) So what's happening here is that the files enumerable got iterated twice. The results from the first iteration are simply not remembered. And on each new iteration, you'd be recalling path.getTempFileName so you get a different set of temp file names. Oh, no. The solution is, of course, to eager enumerate the value by using toArray or toList. Okay. Yeah. 
So instead of, uh, you know, select I with a Lambda operator path.getTemp file name, at the end of that, you, chain, you copy that to an array by, you know, to array. Right. Right. And so that's even scarier when you do multi-threaded stuff. But it's just one of those things that, you know, I probably would have come to the same conclusion and torn my hair out. Yeah. The code seemed very reasonable. It does seem very reasonable. Yeah. Enumerables. It's a gotcha. It's a gotcha. All right. And uh, I have not done this, so I'm just sort of reading it. And if anybody has more to add on this that isn't already in the Stack Overflow uh, conversation because it is closed after all. Right. Feel free to leave a comment on the website. For sure. Yep. So, who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1077, the one we did with Ben Hall. We talked about Docker for Windows, yep. which was at NDC London. Yeah, yeah. And this comment comes from Chana Zupnik, who says, uh, Hey, guys, really love the show. You touched on something I think should be talked about in greater length. Mm. I am more and more convinced that Docker, while great, is just an intermediate stage while we build the next level in service-oriented architectures. Unikernel. It's a gateway drug. Think about that. To unikernels. Uni- unikernel. With a unikernel like Mirage OS, and he points to openmirage.org, you declare what parts of the OS you need. Think of it like with a package manager like NuGet. And when you compile your application, you actually build in the entire OS that runs directly as part of the hypervisor. You don't need to access the file system or user space. Don't include them in the application. What you end up with is an entire OS that's just a few megabytes in size, boots in milliseconds. I think this is the future of server-side software. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is a logical extension of that, right? Sure. Just, rather than having the whole OS there all the time and you only use the bits you need, just pare it all down to what you absolutely need. Yep. You know, it's, it's just part of the manifest of your application. I like it. That very interesting idea. So uh, we're in China. Build it. Get to work. Slacker. <laughs> and thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media. We post the shows on Facebook and Google Plus every time we make one. And if you comment there, we could send you a mug as well. And you can also tweet us. I'm at Carl Franklin. Richard is at Rich Campbell. Anything you'd like to tweet, just go right ahead and do it. We'll ignore it if we don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> And that brings us to our guest. Yoon Tolestal is a speaker, advisor, and consultant working for Miles in Norway. In his last six years, he's worked with operations, DevOps, and Lean for a number of companies to fully automate their deployment processes and Windows infrastructure. As a result of his ongoing learning and experience, he created the open source project Condep, C-O-N-D-E-P, in 2011 to specifically enable and simplify infrastructure automation and continuous delivery on the Windows platform. Welcome, Yoon. Thank you. What do you think of this idea of, of uh, you know, making the OS as part of the, the configuration as well that Chana was talking about? Well, it's kind of the way it's heading, right? Right. Um, I'm not sure I quite picked up on the details of what she was, uh, was talking about, but um, I mean, you see some of the same things with Nano, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're pulling away everything. Yeah. And, and they say, well, if you want to have these additional modules, you need to explicitly add them. Right. right. Uh, yeah. yeah. It is really interesting how Microsoft has sort of obviously embraced Docker and are supporting it, but then building this super lightweight version of Windows. Server. Exactly. At the same time, um, I think, I mean, the only, th- not the only thing they did, but like from a helicopter view, they 
I mean, they removed the UI because right. there was no need for that, right? And they've removed all the components that uh, that wasn't pre-installed, but yeah. was hanging around for later install. And, and we, I mean, we I always mean, had server do core. And they just, I think they've done a better job with it, right? I, I run a few core instances of server for mm. DHCP and, and, and Active Directory and things because and, you're running 512 megs of RAM, which right. you feel like is good till you see the nano server running in, what is it, 128 megs? Like, could be lighter. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, it, uh, no, it's, it's promising. I'm really looking forward to see that in, out in practice and, and start working with it. Yeah, so. no, I'm excited about it. But, you know, the, I'm collecting people's takes on DevOps just because it's kind of an overused word all of a sudden. And from your bio, I get, you know, you come at it very much from a developer perspective, like sort of continuous deployment mindset. What do you, how do you tackle this? Like, what, what does it look like to you? Well, I mean, uh, as from the original definition of DevOps, uh, it, it points to, uh, I mean, the communication between Dev and Ops and, and right. uh, the, the wall that we have in between uh, that we're trying to tear down, right? Yeah. That's the classical right. look at it. Uh, but, like, from my experience, what, we need, what I've done over the years is, like, one thing is focusing on the the technical aspects you need to introduce in order to do all the automa automation. Mm -hmm. right. But then, of course, you have all the organizational challenges and, and, and a bunch of other things that you need to take at the same time because you can't do just the one without the other, so right. to speak. Um, yeah, it has to be adopted company-wide in order for anything to work. Yeah, and it's a really hard concept to explain to somebody who's non-technical. Sure. Uh, because the... The way we've done this over so many years has been, I mean, this is the way we do it. Devs create things and they hand off stuff to ops in order to, to run it, right? right. Or, or uh, host it uh, somewhere. And no one's actually questioned that for decades. Yeah. Uh, and suddenly, uh, I, I guess it, it's related to lean in, in many ways. So we started seeing how can we optimize these things. And it really felt like a huge bottleneck and it, we had to do something there. And when the tools came around to actually do it, it still was hard for for devs and others to explain. It's like, oh, we need to do this because, oh, what's the business argument again for doing yeah, this? Right, right. Right. It, it, it's, it's hard. Yeah. So when you have the cloud and Docker and things like that, are we moving towards no ops? Are, do the, are these IT people going to obsolete themselves? Well, I, I don't think so at all. I mean, the, many people bring up that as... Uh, as the ops side being afraid of losing their work and stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they'll be in, uh, in a fantastic place if, if uh, all, the, all the ops uh, organizations are, are uh, um, uh, approaching DevOps like we talk about because, right. I mean, they spend a lot of their days doing um, a lot of work that's uh, repeat... Uh, the Infrastructure repetitive work. Exactly, yeah. right? And it's not the best rewarding job. I mean, I'm saying not saying that everybody does that, mm -hmm. but yeah. a lot of people do that. And uh, that's trapping it into a development too. As long as you're keeping yeah. a manual build process, you spend a lot of your time mm. walking through this plumbing. And there, you know, yeah. it's not desirable for us, but there are people who just sort of like that sort of no surprises when I come to work. You know, feeling that's secure. Yeah, absolutely. And just, I mean, just the, the, the sense of what you're capable of doing if you have this grade of automation in place. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's 
basically take it far enough, today we just recreate our data center, right? Right, yeah. It's like, we did it last week, but let's do it this week as well. Right. We, we can do that, and we will do that. I mean, if you take it far enough. And it's sure. not as far-fetched as it might, might sound. Sure. Uh, but I have to add, though, it is more difficult on Windows yeah. than any other platform. Well, yeah, the DevOps movement came out of the open source communities, right? The LAMP stack was doing this long before mm. Windows was even considering it. And I think the, there's a couple of pieces. There's not only is it just, in general, Microsoft scrambling to catch up, but that the culture of Microsoft developers is they tend to only want Microsoft products. They, they wouldn't build their own or they wouldn't sort of gra you know, round up parts the way that the open source community normally does. You know, that you sort of pick no. and choose the pieces you want to use. No, maybe. I, again, I think the open source movement within uh, the Microsoft community, so to speak, has improved a lot. Though. Starting to, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I mean, starting at the all.net movement and all that, it, mm -hmm. it, it's come a long way. But um, seeing now, though, is that uh, Windows people, to call it that, or uh, um, uh, we who work on a Windows platform... Uh, are looking out to the other world, so to speak, and, and seeing if we can use the same tools. Right. Uh, so a lot of people are adapting those tools today, like and Chef you, and Puppet yeah, and things I mean, like that, right? And, and Docker, for that matter, all done some substantial work to, uh, to be part of the, in the Windows ecosystem as well. Exactly. But the point is that they're not created for Windows. Right. Windows is kind of added later on. Yeah. And in my experience, Windows will always be an afterthought in these tools. Right. Though we see like companies like Chef having a tighter relationships with Microsoft or a tighter relationship with Microsoft and, and are doing some, some cool things there. Um, but I have experience from Chef and, and, and not all of them was good, but this is like before the time when they started to, to work specifically with Microsoft. Oh, okay. So, yeah. and, and for folks who aren't familiar with Chef, you know, what do you, how do you describe it? Well, it's basically a... Uh, a language where you describe the state of your system. Right. Um, and you have a lot of, uh, like, uh, keywords you can use in order to describe different states of different things in your system. So uh, most people use Ye uh, Chef in order to define what your server looks like. Right. Uh, this is the OS. These are the configuration settings. These are the things I need installed. Right. I have to have IS. It's got to be configured this and that way. And, right. And all those things. Mm -hmm. And you just... So the, the difference is that instead of having this as a golden image inside your organization that you need to, like, keep up to date, uh, you just have the source code right. for creating this state. And whenever you need another instance of that type of server, you just run that code and right. you get that instance. And that code doesn't care if it's one instance or a thousand instances, right? You just get those uh, uh, instantly if you're working towards the cloud or if you have, like, similar APIs internally in an organization for creating instances. Right. And, and yeah, this configuration is code. So, you know, the, the way I've always had it described is if you're using a Word document to to do that, you've already failed. <laughs> exactly. This is yeah. the document, and you execute it, so it's yeah. the truth. Yeah. And we earlier, past couple of weeks, we did a show talking about using Box Starter right. and Chocolatey, same sort of thing as a set of scripts to create machines for you. But I guess you know, Chef is a larger product in that con context. Although, as I understand it, the scripting language is Ruby. 
the scripting language is Ruby, and uh, so so the natural comparison would be to to compare Chef with Puppet. Right. Uh, I think that the the obvious difference is that Puppet is a external DSL. Uh, so they have to kind of define their own language mm -hmm. for how to de de describe uh, the states. And uh, Chef is an internal DSL inside of Ruby that gives you this added uh, um, language you can use to describe it, but you can always fall back on Ruby if you want to. Mm -hmm. And as a developer, I think that's a good thing. Sure. But seeing from an ops perspective, that might not be a good thing. Right? I'm finding more ops people willing to look at programming languages because you know mm -hmm. PowerShell there is more and more tools that have programmerish characteristics to it they're, they're being less worried about that they're willing to learn it yeah I agree with that I know uh, to put it this way I would hope that more ops people thought like you just sure. said right because uh, and I think that uh, Microsoft has made it a little bit difficult for ops people to adopt PowerShell because they've had a lot of focus on the PowerShell as a language. Right. And not so much as it being a shell. Right. So in my talk today, I, for instance, used the example uh, with the command schmod in the Linux Mac world to change the access rights of a file or a directory. Yes. And uh, what do you do for d doing that exact same behavior on, in PowerShell? Well, you have these two nice functions called get ACL and set ACL. Right. Except they don't do what you expect. <laughs> uh, so uh, get ACLs gets you an ACL object. That's good. But set ACL expects list. an object. Right? Right. So you need to use get ACL and pass it to set ACL. And you can't create a file, define like this, the access rights, and then do get ACL on it and then pass it around to the other ones. Right. That's not the way you do stuff. Um, so you actually need to fall back on .NET and create an instance of the ACL object that right. you're going to pass. And a like core operation uh, like this, I would have expected to be in the shell. Yeah, and which would be uh, super simple to do so exactly. that people would do it. Yeah. So the community, of course, have created this a long time ago. Right. Uh, but I would have expected this to be as part of the, the core thing. Right? Interesting. So um, I, I, I was struck by this idea of no ops, you know, and, and particularly around the friction that may come. And you may have had this friction. You may have experienced it. If you go into a company, a lot of what you're trying to do is to give developers more of that sort of operations power, right? Mm -hmm. And do you find that operations people have a hard time letting go of some of those jobs that they that they did, you know, do they still have a role when the developer is spinning up machines and Docker and just, you know, completely circumventing all of this stuff? Does the ops still have a role in that? Yeah, so um, I think we need to, to think about, because let's, if we look at the Windows world, there's, yeah. um, I mean, when we talk about DevOps, we're talking about hosting uh, server applications, right? Right. Uh, that's the typical uh, uh, arena where, where you use these things. And there's a lot of other ops stuff that needs to be maintained and, and, and worked on and, right. and created than exactly that part, right? So what I try to, to tend to focus on in my talks is that uh, it's the 
application part that the developer created we're talking about here. We're not talking about networking. We're not talking about disk racks, right? We're right. not talking about all the other, other aspects right. of, of, um, of ops. So, and we, we are 100% dependent on all those no, things sure, working, I right? It. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I don't think that... <laughs> but have you had that kind of pushback? I mean, I, I'm thinking back to the whole ORM versus SQL thing where, you know, Oranini versus Ted Neward, right? Yep. Where DBAs were going ballistic because all these developers wanted their ORMs to talk directly to tables. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We have layers for that, you yeah. know? And of course, the ORMs want, yep. you know? So DBAs are sort of just kind of, you know, stuff that they had to do, they no longer could do. Yeah. They no longer could control. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by the bug-crushing superpower that is Raygun. If you're wanting to detect and diagnose errors and crashes in your software, even find problems that you didn't know existed to improve your software, then Raygun may be perfect for you. Add a few lines of code to your application, and in minutes you'll get real-time error reports with all the information you need to fix bugs fast. You can even hook it up to your team chat, bug tracking, and development workflow tools. Raygun covers all major web and mobile programming languages and platforms, including .NET, the full Xamarin stack, JavaScript, and many more. Go check out Raygun today at raygun.io and say hello for us. Well, I mean, the most resistance I've noticed, it's more around a classical DevOps issue where the uh, ops people has given responsibility for keeping ops stable yeah. and devs have given responsibility to create applications, right? Right, right. And, and you get this... Uh, uh, issue Blurry where lines. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, and uh, and the officers are getting afraid of of uh, their stability and stuff. But again, communication and, right. and and the same goes with with your question is that are ops people uh, the no ops thing is is that a real is it threatening uh, them? Is, is yeah, is it threatening them? And I don't think so because uh, in the organizations where this becomes a reality. I mean, they've done a lot of work to get to that point. Right. And I would think that they're pretty much aligned to the direction they're heading in, or okay. else they wouldn't have been there in the first sure. place. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sure. What about you, Richard? Do you find that ops people like to have, at least be able to look at dashboards and stuff and see what their developers are doing while they're doing it? And, you know, even if they're not the ones that are creating the virtual machines and spinning things up, they still want to keep tabs on things to make sure they don't go past parameters there's, and whatever. There's a bunch of elements to that. Like, I've worked with a bunch of folks that use System Center, and Operations Manager is pretty good at giving you the heartbeat of servers yeah. and where errors are occurring. Like, that's the one thing that comes out of Opsman really clearly. Is yeah. If you're having ASP.NET errors in production, yeah. you, can, you can get those pretty easily. Um, but the sort of real dashboard, in some ways, I've, I use it as a gauge of how far down the path you are as a DevOps organization or as an organization that's really embracing DevOps principles is to get there, what we'd, we'd have to have development people involved in a firefight. Like, it's Saturday, mm. the site's down, right? Ops guys are working hard trying to keep system running well. They're rebooting servers and trying to figure out what's wrong. There happens to be a senior dev resource there. And they don't do any development because there's no code you can write in a time like that that isn't going to make the situation yeah, worse. That's right. But they have <laughs> insight into how the app works. Right. So you have more intelligent conversation what's going on. But the biggest thing that I've found that comes out of that is this sudden realization that we don't know enough about what's going on in the app. 
Yeah. We and it's very hard for us to say like is this feature working? Right. Like I want to run I want to put an order in that isn't a real order but it exercises the entire mechanism from from the client to the database and back again in production. But if you've got good instrumentation well, that's the question is what is, so often operational instrumentation is external to the app, right? It's, it, you know, at best it's stuff like preemptive analytics that's measuring maybe into the DLL, but most of the time it's requests per second and things out of Perfmon. Or Stackify. Yeah. Something you know, you're, you're fairly far out. When, when developers actually, you get in that situation and you're like, I wish I knew more about what's going on in the app, mm. and you build a real dashboard, something that's integrated into the app yeah. that sort of green lights, red lights, and knobs, like, fire me a transaction. How long did it take to run? Like, did it work? Yeah. So that you can have confidence that it's actually doing what's supposed to be done. That, to me, is an organization that's getting along really well. Yeah. Like, much better than most of the companies I ever talked to. That they would actually get to a point where we've added a feature into an app specifically to make operations understand what's going on in the app in production better. So even if you're not using like Ray Gun or New Relic or Stackify or even Preemptive, yeah, there are things you can do in your code that we can monitor. Yeah, that build help that. Us monitor. You, build you, it in. You give it this idea of a dashboard that I would actually write code to so that operations would have a view of how the app is operating in production. Yeah, uh, and we tr we try to do that, mm -hmm. um, uh, and I mean. It's good you bring up uh, monitoring or monitoring applications because sure. that's a, definitely a core part of DevOps there. Yeah. You can't do all these things without monitoring. Uh, but um, as towards your question, it's the, 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 I think the closer you get to the application, the, the more it should be the developer's responsibility. Right. So, and that's what we realized is that um, actually we took it the other way around. So... Um, so in the insurance company I used to work for, uh, they had an external hosting provider. And what they did was that they agreed on a certain set of SLAs, which made the developers responsible for all the applications, wow. including the host OS it was running on and monitoring that. Right? So it was still ops who actually provided the hardware and the virtualization for making the, all this happen. Yeah. But and the networking and all that around it, but the devs were responsible for the applications and the components around it. And that worked out really well, but it requires certain characteristics, ops characteristics from the developers. Right. So they need to have yeah. certain ops knowledge. Yeah. Not, not like deep networking knowledge, but so you but need to know IAS really know. well and stuff. Sorry? Yeah. Like, you can talk about SLAs all you want. How do you prove that you're getting there, right? Like what's the measurement we're taking to show, you know, we're getting we're going to have this this speed of page response? Like you've got somebody's got to measure that. It seems to me, after talking to Brian Hunter, that you want to have those. What do you call them? Poke 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 I can't remember <laughs> what the name is for this Japanese term, but they're basically things that prevent you from getting into a problem in the first place. So you. If you put an onus on a developer, hey, you know, every method has to be decorated with an attribute or something like that so right. that we can have a dashboard, I think that, that in and itself is asking for trouble. Whereas if you have something that sort of plugs in on the outside and, you know, seamlessly instruments your app, uh, it's probably a, a safer bet. Mm -hmm. may not be as performant as you want, or maybe it is as performant. I don't know what the difference is. It yeah, seems like a safer bet. It's just a question, you know, that scenario you're painting, effectively the service provider is the ops people. 
Yes. There were no ops people per se for the organization. Yeah. And there's always a responsibility in the organization to certain ops elements, even if it's just monitoring the provider. Yes. So it sounds like in that case, the monitoring responsibility fell to the developers. Well, a certain part of it. They, uh, ops people were still responsible of like monitoring CPU states and memory and disk and stuff like that. Sure. So, um, but uh, we, we just agreed at a certain point we draw the line, right? This is your responsibility. This is our responsibility. Right. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of talk about uh, having dev and ops to uh, work together to accomplish this goal, right? But if you have a, an external hosting provider, that's really hard yeah. because... The dis I mean, it's not even in the same city and, no. and things like that. So you need to think differently. Uh, I'm not saying this is the solution. I'm mm -hmm. saying that's a solution that sure. works for us. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think this, there's so many different ways to roll this particular problem, mm. right? As to you know what you're going to own, who's going to work on what, and, and where what that actually looks like. Mm. But you know, the challenge is providing insight of is it the ISP or is it the app, right? Right. The site's down. What? Why? Yeah. Like what's actually going on there that, right. that, that, that the site is down. So the simple thing was that IS was definitely a dev responsibility. Right. right. And, and uh, when we actually started to think about that, we realized that uh, devs were actually the people anyway who knew best how to tune and optimize IS or the app pool in order to run the application most effectively. Right. It was not ops. They had to knew, knew, uh, know a lot about the application in order to tune it. Sure. Mm -hmm. and, and that was dev knowledge. So, yeah. 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 You know, we're in, in ASP.NET and IIS, that intersection point for me is the web config file. You know, if, a, if an operations guy owns the IIS instance and is sort of taking care of the app, in the end, the web config file is sort of telling how it's going to be used, but it's a developer that designed an application around a particular web config. So, you know, who really understands that? Who really owns that? It's, right. And often when I, when I have folks that are relatively inexperienced with ASP.NET, just putting both the dev and the, and the ops guy in the same room, opening the web config file on a screen, let's go line by line and talk about what this means, you know? Yeah. And, and I got to be honest, I mean, most of the ops people I've worked with had, I mean, no interest or uh, Don't knowledge know. about a web config file. Yeah. yeah. That, that's... That's, That's an XML you know. file. Looks shockingly like code. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. Then yeah, maybe there was a parameter that there which he knew he had to replace with a production value or something right. like that. Exactly. But, yeah. But, Some yeah. app setting. And then it was documented a Word document, by the way. So <laughs> that's not a way to go either, right? I love it. <laughs> but you know, the the one most of the time, the ops guys weren't interested in looking at the web config file until we got to forms based authentication. Yeah. And then they. It's all they, about the then ops, isn't it? <gasps> Right, because now it's stepped on their security document, or even Windows authentication. Yeah. You know, when you have a list of uh, authenticated users in there, oh boy, watch out! Yeah. yeah. Well, That's, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to announce my new DevOps product that combines features of both Chef and Puppet. Oh. It's called Bort Bort Bort. Oh no, dude, we're in Norway. <laughs> Bort Bort Bort. <laughs> Swedish, the it's Swedish okay. chef. Come on now. He's a chef. Yeah, He's a puppet. Yeah. yeah. He's the uh. Swedish chef. Actually, it's time to give away a music to code by music and video collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But let me tell you about music to code by if you don't already know. And of course you do because you listen to this show. It's a set of 25-minute Pomodoro-sized, quiet and groovy instrumental music tracks specifically designed to promote focus. It'll get you into a state of flow and keep you there. 
just check out the tweets. Check out the comments at mtcb.pwop.com. That's mtcb.pwop.com and see what all the fuss is about. Awesome, dude. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Graham Goodson. Congratulations, Graham. Golf, Golf clap for you. Clap for you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and Graham just won Music to Code by Music and Video Collection. That includes a documentary about the making of it. And uh, if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club that you got to sign up to win. And we'd like to ask our guests, Yoon, if you had 5000 U.S. to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Whoa. <laughs> Wait 10 years and see what, what I can <laughs> get for it. No, I, I have no idea, actually. I haven't really thought much about that. Um, what gadget don't you have? Well, the thing is, when, like... You this kind of work and you're lucky you ask your employee and you get a lot of stuff and yeah, you don't no really have mm. to think much about it but <laughs> yeah. I don't know all the latest new devices that I can play around with and my kids of course they would probably have a list way longer than mine so probably sure. yeah. yeah you watch the the, the the announcements around Oculus Rift with the Xbox and 3D HoloLens. printers maybe 3D printer would have been a good thing. Yeah. Uh, as in gaming, I haven't done that much in years. No. So, but, my, but I'm thinking in context of your kids. That yeah, is something they yeah. probably demand. I think they're getting me into trouble there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting problem. Every time we've actually done that giveaway, we've done three of them now, it's a dev environment of some kind. Right. Sometimes the desktop machine set up for touch and, and gesture. Sometimes it's for mobile development. And, you one know, guy that's had what a, people need in the end. One guy did a dev desktop and then threw in a laptop because he had like 800 bucks left over so he got a nice little laptop I think what I've spent most money on over the years is actually these weird instruments for my sailing boats no my yeah. sailing boat that is uh, that cost a lot more than the IT stuff we're used to oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> sailing has its own set of gadgets and geekery yeah. it'll eat up as much money as you want to give it yeah. well you know what a boat is it's a hole in the water into which you pour money <laughs> And the two happiest days in a boat owner's life, the day they buy a boat and the <laughs> day they, they sell, sell it. it. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Oh. I, you know, my whole family is on, in boats. Of my course. father built boats, for Christ's sake. Yeah, we're all, we're all coastal people, right? I'm yeah. on the west coast of Canada. You're on the east coast of the U.S. Yeah. You know, and you're... I'm from west coast of Norway. West coast of Norway, go. right? So, you know, boats are part of our lives for one way or another. I've just always avoided owning them. I'll borrow them for yeah, a while you know, them for money that's the economical same thing to do yes I'm that guy I have a friend who uh, has a, boat, a sail, beautiful sailboat I charter try to charter every summer just to take it out on Long Island Sound for, for a nice sail there All you right. go alright so we're, your talk is on the particular difficulties of DevOps in the Windows uh, on the Windows platform and uh, I'm, I'm sure we haven't covered them all yet, the difficulties. No, uh, I think that if I'm going to pick one thing, it would be PowerShell. Because, uh, I mean, Microsoft is now putting everything in place in order to having everything automated, right? right. Except that we're missing this key tool to automate it. And most people are looking to PowerShell for doing that. Yep. 
Uh, and as I, as I mentioned briefly earlier, I think there's quite a few things missing from the shell. Uh, they focused a lot on, on it being a programming language. Uh, I think they have a, way, a long way to go in order to make it a proper shell. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I also think that uh, there's an easy way out of this. And I, I think that is exactly what's going to happen. I think Microsoft should open source all the PowerShell modules and all the desired state configuration modules to the community, or of course they have a role in it themselves as well, and that problem will be solved. I'm, Interesting. I'm, I'm a big and fan of The problem of that. is to open source that, so to pretty much Windows. open source the product. Well, I'm, actually, I'm not, you think about PowerShell as a language? Yeah. Well, no, um, I'm thinking, I mean, aren't you talking about open sourcing like all of the, uh, the modules to be able to command IIS into a particular configuration. You want that to be open source? Yeah. Because isn't that really IIS in the end? Yeah, maybe. But, um, well, yeah, I, I would like to see those open source as well, but sure. more the one that's core to the operating system because I think that we as users and practition, practitioners in PowerShell right. really knows what we need from core PowerShell. Are we I would like to contribute that back into the system. Are we walking towards open sourcing Windows? I mean, why not? I open sourcing everything yeah. else, but uh, from my perspective, I wouldn't have much to contribute with there, but, but I'm I mean, sure there's a lot But I mean, PowerShell is so tied to Windows, it may be hard to run one without the other. I mean, if it depends on how separate they are. Yeah, I agree, though uh, Windows is providing a set of uh, characteristics which is pretty stable over time. Yeah. Uh, you're going to run your stuff on it. That, that's sure. basically what, what it's supposed to give you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that the amount of change you see in uh, PowerShell would be a lot more than what you see in the core operating system. Yeah. Sure. Though Agreed. I'm sure you will see examples of where you do want to do something in PowerShell and you can't actually find what you need from the APIs in, in Windows. Right. And it would be great to have it open source and actually tweak the API to do exactly that. Yeah, I think it's, you know, the, clearly the dev side of, of Microsoft has embraced, at least in the .NET space, open source, but it doesn't mean the whole organization has. No, absolutely. I, I think it's that, you know, you're making a big wish. <laughs> yeah. Well, the rumor in the uh, PowerShell community is supposed to be that it's heading in that direction. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, it's hard to tell. Yeah, so, and, and, and then it's what bits of PowerShell. Right. Exactly. I mean, PowerShell, the language, is one thing. I just don't know. That's probably open source. Well, it's relatively recent. But would that be valuable to us in the end? It wouldn't I hurt. think that the modules would be the... The modules are the thing, and I think that's good. that yeah. means each team. You know, I think Jeffrey Snover and co. have done a good job of evangelizing PowerShell internal to the company to get products rebuilt. You know, they basically rewrote IIS mm -hmm. to make it PowerShell-centric, and the new... GUI on top, the IIS manager, mm. is just making PowerShell commands under the hood. That, to yeah. me, is the most extreme implementation, as opposed to what the SQL team did, which is, hey, we have our own data manipulation and configuration language already. Here's a PowerShell applet that allow you to call to us. You know? Yeah. Well, again, it's... Uh one thing is to actually set up and configure a SQL server yeah. versus actually maintaining it over time. Yes. So, uh, but I, th I think that uh, from my point of view, it, I would be interested in the PowerShell command list to actually 
configure SQL Server as a server. Sort yeah. Of like. oh, yeah. I did a show over on Run As Radio about desired state configuration with SQL Server. It's actually about around SharePoint. And, you know, to actually write a script to completely deploy SharePoint is to deploy a bunch of different servers, including SQL Server. Mm -hmm. And one of the issues that ran into was that just getting the PowerShell, getting SQL Server installed, get the PowerShell modules running on SQL Server is unreliable and inconsistent. Right. It, it, mm. it, it works sometimes, wouldn't work other times, there was no real pattern to it, and in the end, to make a reliable installer was to not bother with PowerShell on, on mm. SQL Server, but to use a direct scripting language to mm. control huh. it. Interesting. Which, I mean, there was a solution, but it's, and I, the only reason I bring this up is to recognize, you know, Microsoft is not one big thing. Each no, no. of these teams do things their own way, and, and the SQL team has approached this problem in a particular way, and uh, it's not necessarily in parallel with a lot, how a lot of other teams have done stuff. Mm. Yeah. But a big new message now is that we're removing the UI, right? Yeah. yeah. And by removing the UI, you need to have all the other automatically mechanisms in place yep. in order to, for you to have you do your daily work, right? Mm -hmm. or, or configure right. these things. And the SQL so. team would argue back that they've removed the UI a long time ago. You could call OSQL as a command line with whatever statement you wanted mm -hmm. and it would do it. Right? It's just not consistent with what IIS and Exchange and SharePoint have done in the PowerShell, yeah. with PowerShell support. But that requires you to have SQL Server installed to begin with. Yep. But so yeah, I mean, there's, yeah. there's ways to do that, but it's still, I'm with you, it's hard. Yeah. And, it's, and I don't think it's ever going to be consistent. Mm. Like I'm just sort of embracing the reality that you know, these things aren't all the same. Yeah. So another aspect is uh, the Windows installer, right? I think uh, Jeffrey in his talk at, uh, at the Build 2015 mm -hmm. mentioned something about creating a new installer. Uh, of course, you can automate Windows installer today using MSI exec and all that. Yep. But it's not given that the installer you're installing actually is uh, uh, have all the mechanisms or the variables in place in order to be fully automated. Yeah. Um, so I think that... Um, so you mentioned chocolate uh, earlier. Mm -hmm. I think systems like that really, or people committing to chocolate has really done a great job in trying to automate these things, which to me, some of them look like impossible to automate, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, and if you bundle that stuff in an XC as well, you need to like reverse engineer the whole thing in order to figure out how to send commands to it. Right, yeah. Uh, so, so I think that story uh, is really good um, uh, in the future now for Microsoft. Mm -hmm. uh, so I really like that. He's uh, going in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I believe the continuous delivery side is feasible, that the... the, the, the studio team and the dev group as a whole have clearly been working towards that. They're doing it more themselves, like the best dog food you could hope for is they're actually getting faster and faster deploying their own stuff. And I buy into the configuration as code that you're seeing different pieces and choices they're feeling around, whether it's support for Chef or it's the chocolatey approach, like there's all there. I feel like the most lost piece right now is instrumentation. Like there's a stack of choices, there's no guidance, it's literally like there's still teams competing. There's APM inside a system center. There's uh, app insights off of Azure. There's preemptive analytics in the studio box. They got nothing to do with each other. They all do pieces of the puzzle of trying to understand where your app's actually at. Like, what do, you, do you focus on this at all in your practice? Well, I mean, uh, I think that's a, uh, a rapid maturing business. Uh, a lot of tools are coming out of that space. Mm -hmm. 
personally, what we used was uh, a system like Splunk yep. yeah. in order to get all this data in, right? Uh, it has its problems as well. It's not flawless. No, uh, none of them are. And, uh, but, but, but I guess the appealing thing about a system like that was the ability to combine all these different metrics from all kinds of places yeah. with all kinds of sources and uh, see them cross environment and do queries like you would any database. Yeah. Uh, and it's fast until it isn't fast anymore and then you need to do all this work. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, no, so I don't think the vote is out yet. Who, uh, and I, I hope to see a lot of new great system coming around in that space because yeah. that, that is a challenge. Where is security, sort of Infosys and QA falling in this story for you guys? Well, a lot of the, so in the work that I've done, a lot of security work has been done by devs. I mean, right. devs being security experts. Taking on that effort. Right. Um, so that, that makes it easier. Um, but I think that um, some of the efforts that are happening now where it's so easy to create a new container and, and do this stuff. I mean, security is on a sideline and sure, in so many of those initiatives, right? Yeah, for so, devs especially. Is it safe to say that ops is, is the one that nails everything down and the devs are the ones that pull up the nails? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, at, at least it used to be like that. Uh, I, I would say you're right in that. But uh, that's, I guess that's one of the exact things we're trying to do something about, right? So at least if we hit the nail down, it's a dev and ops person doing it together, yeah, right? Yeah. Without hitting their fingers or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm not sure how far we're going to bring that analogy. But <laughs> 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 anyway, either way, it hurts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about the testing side of this equation? Like, what do you, what do you when you're getting towards a sort of continuous deployment model? Do you use a lot of automated testing, and how do you fit that in? How we, good is it? We do, though. I, I want to just before going into that, sure. just make a quick separation between continuous deployment and continuous delivery. Yes, uh, because I mean, continuous deployment to me is uh, every check-in you do end up in production, right? If it runs through your automatic it, pipeline, yeah, it right? Runs the gauntlet successfully. Yeah. Uh, while continuous delivery basically goes, goes through the same pipelines but uh, stops just before production and somebody actually have to click a button in order to push it the last mile. And right? it seems to me like the more intelligent solution. Like the, the, there is a person, a man in the process going, okay, passes my sanity check, go. Well, I think it, all, it really depends. Yeah. Uh, I've just been a consultant for six months. I've started learning to use that word, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, you did very well actually. <laughs> just let it, it just rolled off the top. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, but it uh, uh, depends on your system, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, so I, I worked with stuff where you just can't test it enough. Right. I mean, no matter how much testing you throw at it, you won't guarantee uh, non-failure, no. right? Yeah. So. So you need to put it out there in the environment and actually to get feedback right. and see if something breaks. And, and uh, so by having a really rapid uh, delivery model, at least when something goes wrong, you can fix it immediately right. and roll it out, right? Yeah. And if you have these very small batches going out, uh, so I, I've 
seen at the insurance company I used to work, there's like two, three lines of codes uh, going out for each uh, deployment. And it's like three lines of codes and it broke. Well, it's got to be one of those three yeah, lines, right? I got a pretty good idea where to look. Exactly. <laughs> so, so it kind of narrows it down. So, and it's really easy to fix and, and it's really easy to get out there. So even though a user experiences a bug and something breaks, it is a very short time and the user is quite happy when an hour later... It's working. He, he gets a notice saying, well, actually, the, the experience you just had is fixed. Right. So, now, do you... When you have an error like that, the three-line error, is it? do you roll back so they're operational, then fix it, roll forward again? Or do you just try and fix it and roll forward? So again, it depends on the system. But so certain legacy t systems, you can't have this, you Out don't have the same rapid deployment right. experience. So for those, you might be forced to rolling back. Mm -hmm. We never rolled back in that sense, though. We, right. we uh, just redeployed a previous version and we make sure that any schemas and stuff on on, uh, on database servers are backward and forward compatible. Right. Um, but with regards to uh, other type of system, it's forward only. Right. Uh, fix the bug, get it, uh, get the fix out Roll there. Forward. Yes. Yeah. So, but re regards to uh, testing, yeah, um, I think that uh, yes, it is a lot of automated testing, mm -hmm. uh, but not as much as we used to. Funny enough. Hmm. Because the so over time we discovered that the cost of actually automating uh, the test regime around not just the unit testing stuff but the uh, automated acceptance testing and and all these aspects it has a high cost to it sure. not just doing the job but actually maintaining it over yeah. time is the maintenance that's yeah so expensive. we actually went pretty far out on the automating automating uh, stack and then pulled back a bit. Hmm and was more conscious about which part of the systems we want to automate uh, and which is the core critical parts mm -hmm. um, and actually started to relying more on the rapid feedback we got from the deployment process, yeah. right? So, but you got to like weight this, right? You can't, uh, you can't just do one or the other. No, uh, but I, I really like the idea that with a rapid deployment process like that and with good instrumentation, you can measure production and find those problems faster than you ever could writing tests to your blue in the face. Absolutely. The problem is that if you don't spin that carefully, what you now say to operations is, hey, we're going to start testing software in production. And that scares them. You know? yeah. no, not only that, but just saying that, oh, uh, we used to do like deployments... Uh, once a month. Yeah. Now we're gonna do it like four Every times day. a day. Yeah. Right. It's like whoa, whoa. You're gonna do what? What are you saying? Right. Yeah. Well, because there was and so much drama once a month, they presume right. all that drama is gonna happen every day now. Exactly. Right. And it's kind of the opposite, right? Yeah. The more often you deploy, the less dramatic it becomes. Yeah. It is, and and you gotta just do that step by step and earn that trust, right? right? Uh, because there's no doubt about it. As long as you have uh, some automated testing and and you you safe about your quality. Yeah. That, you're gonna raise that quality even higher if right. you automate this. Catch thing. the yeah. dumb, right? But you can't catch everything, right? But being able to roll back, making the deployment process so painless that you could roll back, which is just more like a confidence thing for the ops guys. You can get back, don't worry. Yeah. But by the time the time you're gonna do that back, we could probably fix this and roll forward. Exactly. Because we're taking yeah. such small bites now. Yeah. I have an example uh, from where, where um, this insurance company I referred to where. Um, 
because you have this concept of uh, feature toggles. Right. So uh, you just add features to the system, but they're like hidden to the end user. Yeah, and yeah. no visible UI. Yeah. But you yep. keep continuously playing them out to production, right. right? So they're in production. Yeah. So they like continuous integrated into the production system, but just not visible, right? Right. So uh, someday a manager came to us to say, well, sh we need to make some planning in order to release this new feature. So I've set off about two weeks in order to do this. And it's like, well, we can't do it just now if you want to. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah whatever. Yeah. It's like, no, we're serious. I mean, we can click this button now. And it'll be and on. We, and we're not even deploying anything. We're just turning the feature on. Turning right? the yeah. UI on. It's like, uh, oh, no, no, don't do that. Oh, by the way, it's done. Yeah. Yeah. Oops, yeah. I hit it's the out button. There. Oh, no. <laughs> so, um, I mean, those type of things. And, and that has also to earning trust with a business and letting business know what features or what, what new things are are available to you right. uh, as part of this new process of it's running the, the business. An interesting right? take on it that we got this week was, have you ever done something so quickly and so awesomely that there was actually mistrust? Couldn't have gone that quickly. You couldn't have possibly done that yeah. that fast. Well, actually, no, not in the sense you, you're mentioning, but I, I remember one thing when you said that, and, and it hasn't uh, related to anything that I've done, but uh, a bank in Norway created a login process it's that was so fast <laughs> that the user didn't rely on the login. Didn't oh. believe the login. So they have to have a thread sleep in there in order to, <laughs> to wow. make it more trustworthy. So you right? feel better because we waited for a while. Exactly. It should yeah. take no, some I'm time sorry. to log in. You're much too awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> please, please be stupid. I'm going to yeah. turn the awesome knob down here <laughs> yeah. with a thread weight. <laughs> wow. But the rest thing is when you're complaining it takes too long, I can budget a couple of weeks of performance tuning and I'll deliver on time. Yeah. I just got to press this button. We worked on a project, it was an e-commerce related project, where we were trying to do a recommendation engine. And it was hugely computationally expensive. So we were computing the, the, the recommendations in the background, never showing the user while we're making sure A, the data was valid and we knew how much the overhead was. But back to that whole dashboard thing, it put enough stress on the system that when the site got really busy, ops wanted to be able to shut it off. It's like, hey, for these three peak hours, let's just turn it off until we can provision more hardware and stuff. But the big thing for us that we learned from that is that when we actually rolled the feature out, it didn't crash the site. Hmm. By the time we were ready to roll it out, we'd already positioned the additional hardware. We were already there because right. we'd had a couple of months of testing hmm. and optimizing without ever showing it to customers. Mm. So you sort of get rid of that aspect of it. We, and we were calling it integrate first development. Hmm. That long before yeah, the feature was in use or even fully tested or anything, it was already integrated. Yeah. So, that, so you got all over, over all that crap. Mm. Nothing worse than building a really complicated feature on a branch mm. and never having it in production. And then one day it's like, oh, okay, well, here's 50,000 lines of code. We're going to drop into production today. Today, What could go wrong? Exactly. Yeah. But the fact that, that code had been living in production for months yeah. without being visible to the users, and we had all this data on it. One little bit field in the yeah. tables. All it takes. I'm just going to push the button. Push but push the button. the button. Just change it from but a the zero other thing, to you one. Know, the other thing, when management comes at you on that, is the devs are like, yeah, we've been tuning it. And the ops guys are, yep, the site will stay up. Like yeah. when Dev and Ops agrees on something right. towards management, Good scares things. the snot out of them. Good That's things. not normal. They're supposed to disagree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. What is wrong? Actually, when, with when you talk about uh, uh, a branching, that's that's one of my things because uh, uh, that that is really one of the things that's going to slow you down. Yeah, if you're gonna if you do a lot of branching, so it's quite common to do like feature branching. Sure. And I mentioned uh, feature toggles. 
And uh, feature toggles is actually a uh, can be a replacement of branches, right? right. So uh, I think that those of us who are serious of doing this continuous delivery, continuous deployment thing, mm -hmm. need to consider the branches and actually getting rid of them. Right. So and when I say branches, staying on the trunk all the time. Yeah. When, and when I say branches, I'm talking about long-lived branches. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, right. you can branch as much as you want on your client, but don't just push them. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and doing that adds a lot of value, but it takes some getting used to sure. doing this feature toggle thing instead of branches is, yeah. is sometimes hard. It means talking to ops, right? Uh, I'm, I'm adding this code into production, but you know, make sure you leave it off. Well, not, not necessarily, because it can be code, right? Yeah. So uh, that's what I said. It's like when, you do feature, uh, when you're doing feature toggles, you can do crazy stuff in that code in order to have the code bounce from here to there because whatever it touches now is, is part of the new feature. Sure. But you need to tag that code somewhere so we can go back and remove it when you turn that toggle on. Right. right. Because never leave uh, your feature toggles hanging around in the system after they're actually released. Yeah, yeah once yeah. the customers are expecting them. Right. I like so, that. That's really yeah. cool. Yep. Very good. So what's next for you, man? What's, what's in your inbox? Well, uh, after this conference, I'm actually going on a longer vacation. Nice. Uh, what a great idea. Yeah, we have the Volvo Ocean Race uh, in our backyard here now, going okay. down to Sweden. So I'm going great. down there and uh, look at those boats coming in. Yeah. Uh, and after that is uh, back to consulting and DevOps and, and continue that work. And um, I've, I've told my uh, fellow colleagues that I think that 2015 will be the DevOps year. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't argue with you. Yeah, that's true. That's a good one. Yeah, be interesting. All right, Yoon, thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you. It's been great. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a